All right. Well, this meeting is being recorded and welcome everybody to our Sunday worship. And we will not be missing that when we regather together. Um, although I just realized some of us, we might be actually missing these times because, you know, you get to just stay home and be on your bed and watch wherever you're from. Uh, but at the same time, at, at our church, we really believe in the gathering of, of the church and definitely look forward to that. So today and then next week is going to be our last Zoom. And who knows, maybe we'll do a, an emoji party or whatever it might be, whatever people do online. Uh, but we're going to have a final thing for next week and just really look forward to meeting in person. And again, do want to reiterate our members meeting that's happening tonight. Uh, and, and that members meeting is also going to be special because tonight will be our last members meeting on Zoom. And so the future member meetings that we have, I mean, if you guys remember, it used to be after service where we eat lunch, then afterwards there'll be a members meeting that follows. And we're going to go back to that routine as well. And so looking forward to these last moments that we have together in this online medium. And definitely also look forward to talking about what it's going to look like to regather as a church. And so please join us for that members meeting tonight at 8 p.m. This is your first time here. We welcome you. And we're glad you could still join us in our Zoom uh, worship. Uh, we've been going through a sermon series the past few weeks called The Five Loves, and I will say with the clear conscience of all the sermon series that we have ever gone through, this is the most underrated sermon series ever because it's been done on Zoom, and it's unfortunate because I know that on Zoom it could be challenging to really pay attention to what's happening and the message that's being preached, and I completely get it. I understand the, the struggle and the feeling, and it's really, uh, it's really uh, tough for me to realize that because I think this series, it's so important. It's about something that's so central to the Christian life, which is this idea of love and how we practice love and not in this general sentimental way that we're so used to, but in a very specific type of way uh, that Christians are called to. And so I know I've been challenged when I think about what it means to love and how it could actually look like in my life. And I hope that our church could be challenged as well as we go through the series. And we'll be wrapping up the series next week, uh, starting uh, with that last online gathering that we have. And so with that being said, this is the second last one. And the passage that we're going to be looking at for today, if you have your Bibles, it's from the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to be in Luke chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 27 all the way to verse 36. So Jesus, he is giving what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. It is Jesus, it is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a little bit shorter. And starting in verse 27, we see Luke's version of a kind of a famous passage that you might be familiar with, Matthew's version. But here we are, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. If you're there with me, I'll read out loud. So verse 27 says, and this is Jesus speaking, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the reading of God's word. So all the parents here could probably, or at least the young parents, you'll probably resonate with me here, where our kids, uh, when they're young, they tend to go through different TV show phases. And it's funny when I see young parents, they all know the TV shows. We all have a fellowship with the TV shows our kids watch because we're forced to watch them. And my son, he's no different. He had his baby shark days where he was really into baby shark. Later on, he got into Daniel Tiger, and that was his, his jam for a while. Then he started watching Cocomelon, and no one knows what Cocomelon is. All the parents know what Cocomelon is. And then there's this weird show that he got into called Toys in Color. It is the most ridiculous show about these people who are just showing off toys, and it's ridiculous, and yet it has millions of views. And my son, he's into all these different shows. Right now, he is into this show called Wild Kratz, which I never heard of before, but Wild Kratz Basically, what the show is, it's there's these guys, they're called the Krat Brothers, and it's like a real life action thing. And they're describing, they're like driving a Jeep and they're describing like an animal. They'll say, like, Oh, do you look at the panda bear. Did you know panda bears are like this? Or do you know grizzly bears are like that? And all of a sudden, they'll both look at the camera going, What if we had these powers like a bear? And it transforms when they become these animals and they start to have the powers of the animals that they have and it's, it's kind of an education show it's on pbs and what's funny is you know it's a good show because it's just educating your kids about animals and what they're like and so my son judah he'll always come up to me and he just gives me these random facts he'll say things like oh did you know what like cats could do did you know what like a uh, koalas could do and he'll say things like you know like what lions that they're mammals or oh do you know that snakes that they're reptiles he just throws out all these random facts but little does Judah know, I love animals too. And I'm just pretending like I don't know what he's talking about, but I have like all this stuff that I want to tell my son one day about animals. And I am waiting for the day where I'm going to blow my son's mind, where I'm going to introduce to him one of the weirdest animals that he won't know how to make sense of and won't know how to categorize, the platypus. You guys know the platypus, right? Weirdest animal. He's not ready for it yet. I don't think he'll get it. But it's so weird because my son, I could just imagine telling him, hey, this is a platypus. You know what kind of animal it is? It lives in water like a fish, but it has fur. Isn't that weird? It has a beak like a bird, but it can't fly. Isn't that weird? It, it, it lays eggs like a reptile, but it's warm-blooded. And it's like, I just imagine my son going, what is this thing that you're introducing me to? And it's so, this animal is so weird that it took taxonomists 80 years to classify it. They had no idea how to classify this animal because it looks like a mammal, but it defied all categories around the animal kingdom. It's different. You can't categorize it. And in a weird way, Jesus is saying something similar about his church. Weird transition, right? <laughs> but this is something that just in my brain, Wildcrats and Christianity, and I connected it to you where Jesus is essentially saying the same thing here. Jesus is saying, when you meet Christians, they're going to look just like everybody else, but something should stand out about them where you just cannot categorize who these people are. In the passage we just looked at, this is, again, the Sermon on the Plain or the Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, before the passage we just read, he gave the Beatitudes. And it's all about that, hey, when you are a follower of mine, you're going to appear poor to everybody, but you're actually rich. You're going to appear like you're hungry, but you're actually satisfied. You're going to look like you're weeping, but you're actually going to be laughing. Because the church, this is the human version of a type of, of, type of people that you just cannot categorize, where we look like everybody else, and yet there is something vastly different about this group. 
because this group of Jesus's followers, they're composed of a unique people that you cannot put in the class, like rate the same race or the same gender, the same social class. It's all different, all different types of folks. And not only is it different types of folks who are supposed to be in this community, but their behavior is supposed to also be different. We don't just worship many gods. We worship one God. We don't have sex with anybody, but we have sex with our spouse. We don't just hoard our money and save our money, but we give and we are generous with it. But the most distinct behavior, the one behavior that's supposed to stand out more than any other behavior that Christians are supposed to have, that's constantly said throughout Jesus' teachings, is how we love. More specifically, who we love and what that love looks like. And that's why we're going through the series of the five loves. It's challenging us to realize as a Christian, how am I supposed to love? And again, not in a general sentimental way, but specifically, what does this look like? Part one, when we went through the series, we said that we're not just to believe in God, because every, there's all religions believe in God. But for Christians, we are called to love God. And not just love God, but love him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. That's what that's supposed to look like. In part two, we talked about how we're not just supposed to love our friends or those we have commonality with, but we're supposed to love one another, the church. And we're not just supposed to love each other by attending service together and sharing, and sharing the same seats and saying hello, but we're supposed to love as Christ loved us. It's a huge, huge calling that Christians are called to have. And then last week, we talked about how we're not just to live and tolerate our spouses and our family, but we're called to love, love as Christ love the church. And now today we're looking at what is known as the fourth way Christians are called to love. And this is probably the most challenging and the least practiced love of all. And because this is the most challenging, the least practiced, it's probably potentially the most powerful expression that Christians could ever practice when it comes to love, loving our enemies. And so the way we're going to look at this is through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at this passage, and we're going to look at it in three ways to understand what this means to love our enemies. Number one, we're going to look at the radical call to love. Why does, what does it mean? What is, how do we understand this call, and what does it actually mean? Secondly is the powerful witness of love. What happens when we actually love like this? And then lastly, the personal strength for love. How can we actually love our enemies in this way? So the radical call, the powerful witness, the personal strength. First, the radical call to love. And just to warn you, we're going to actually camp most of our time here because I think it's going to take a long time to really understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. And I always recommend anything of C.S. Lewis. But one thing that Lewis says in this book is that when you look at all the religions of the world, they all kind of share similar moral ethics. Meaning like, hey, why should I be a Christian? They're all kind of the same. Don't they say the same things? And in one sense, Lewis says, yes, there, there's, there's a lot of commonality in all the religions of the world. For example, all the religions talk about how it's good to tell the truth. That's not a distinctly Christian thing. All religions will talk about the goodness of telling truth or care for your family, love your family. That's actually a very universal thing that most religions have in common or even charity. Show, show charity to widows, show charity to the poor. Most religions will share that common command saying, yeah, that's always good. But here in the passage of Luke, when Jesus instructs his disciples to love their enemies, we have something that no other religion until Jesus came into the world ever instructed. This is radically Christian. This is a radically unique call. Not just the instruction that Jesus gives to love your enemies, but look at the way he describes it in verse 27. In verse 27, again, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus is saying, when you are my followers and you are called to love, don't just love your family, although you should love them. Don't just love one another, although you should love them. Don't just love the poor, although you should love them. But even those who are your enemies, Jesus says, love them. Who are your enemies? He defines it for us in verse 27. Those who hate you, those who curse you, those who abuse you, those who utter words that harm you, Jesus is saying, respond to them with love and realize who Jesus' audience is. When he's preaching this message, he's preaching to Jews who are living in a Roman-occupied area. There are real enemies that they could think of. So you're telling me the Roman soldiers who are taking away our freedom, who are overseeing us, who tax us, you're saying to respond to them, I need to respond with love? That's exactly what Jesus is telling them. There's a real enemy that's there, and Jesus is saying when you see them, respond as a Christian, as my followers, not with hatred, not with burning rage, but with love. Now, I know today, many of us, we don't have Roman occupation here. We don't face persecution. So we might think this is just a nice sentiment for people maybe back in the day or people with real problems. It's just a nice saying or something philosophical. And no one would disagree with that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, of course it's good to love your enemies. Because many of us, we don't feel like we have enemies. We all feel like we're kind of, this doesn't really apply to us. But look at the examples Jesus gives when he describes enemies. It's not in a persecuting wartime scenario that Jesus is only thinking about. In verses 29 to 30, it's not when enemies are, are uh, killing you and putting you in jail. But look what he says in verses 29 30. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, meaning somebody who insults you. Not punch, the word strike is literally a slap. Not someone who's trying to kill you, but someone who insults you by a slap. Or someone who takes away your cloak. Someone who takes away something personal from you. Or someone who takes away your goods. This is something that Jesus talked about, these everyday experiences that we face. In other words, what we actually learn from this is that all of us have enemies. We all experience enemies. We all have people who insult us, who wrong us, who make us feel less than human, who actually bring us harm. Those are the people who Jesus is talking about, not this arch nemesis that you might meet once in your life, but he's talking about the regular types of people who hurt you. This reminds me a few days ago, my wife and I, we were celebrating our 10 year anniversary. And so for our 10 year anniversary, we drove out to LA and we ate at this nice restaurant called Bestia. Some of you might've heard that place before, but it was awesome. But you know, if you've ever been to a restaurant in LA, you know that parking is really challenging. And so what happened was we pulled up to Bestia and we were waiting for valet to park our car. And there was this a white car in front of us, like that, and a little bit of space between us. And all of a sudden, this black truck came and tried to squeeze in between my car and the white car because there was a parking spot to our right. He was trying to get in. And I remember the black car, the, the, black, the black truck, the guy stuck out his head and he yelled at both me and the white car, going, Move, like, move your car. And, you know, for me, I was just like, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, Is he yelling at me? And then the person in front of me, the white car, he stuck his head out, just yelling at him back. And I had no idea what they're saying. And so all of a sudden, the guy in the black truck, he opens his car door, closes it. He comes out, and he starts yelling at the white car, telling him, get out of the car. 
And I'm just having like flashes of like, oh my gosh, we're like watching a fight here. And they're just like screaming back and forth at one another. And I remember as I'm watching, I'm just like, I'm playing this scenario and I'm thinking, what if this happened to me? Like, what if he was yelling at me at this moment? He, he easily could have, because I was there too. But for some reason he chose to yell at the other guy. And I was thinking, what would I do in this situation if that guy was screaming at me to get out of my car? I would like to think that I would either, you know, just love him back or I'd like to think that I'll be like, okay, I'll come out and I'll come out and like do something. But you know what most likely will happen? Because I'm Asian and I'm passive, I'll probably just be really quiet. Not nice, but just really quiet. And when we go in the restaurant, I talk a lot of crap about him with my wife. Like that guy. And I just probably like trash him and so forth. I just be really angry. And the reason why I know I'd respond that way is because he's insulting me. This guy's like yelling at me nonsensically. I feel like he's wronging me. And so I have every right to trash him and just to be angry with them because he's making me feel less than human. In other words, what's happening at that moment? He has become my enemy. He is somebody who has wounded me. He is somebody who I'm naturally going to retaliate against. That's how it works. That's how we receive enemies. That's how we experience them. And while many of you, you may not have a guy come out of a car and threaten you to come out of, come out of your car to fight him, we live in a broken world that's broken by sin. And you're all going to experience moments like this in any community you experience, whether it be at school or at work or in your home or even in a church, you will experience different types of enemies. It's inevitable. doesn't matter what church you go to. doesn't matter what workplace you go through. You're always going to meet somebody who insults you, who wrongs you, who makes you feel less than human. And many of you, you've already experienced this. In fact, you have somebody in mind, probably. There's somebody you probably could think of right now, like, yeah, I know that guy. I know that girl who makes me feel that way. How do you naturally respond to them? What's your natural response to a person like that? I know for a lot of us, if we uh, don't know them that well, if it's a like customer service, for example, we could retaliate and let them know how we're not happy. If we kind of see them all the time, though, we kind of make sure that, hey, at the safe face, like at work, we might just avoid them. Or if it's at church, for example, we'll just withdraw and not really get near to them. Or we might just kind of gossip behind their backs, letting people know how bad they are and what they've done to us. And this feels totally normal. This is the natural response. And we all feel fine with this. It reminds me of my kids. My kids, they're old enough where they'll play. And when they play at the same toy, they try to grab the same thing and they start pushing each other and they just start fighting and yelling. And my wife and I will always tell them, hey, don't do that, even though I understand why you're doing that, but you don't treat your family that way. That's your brother, that's your sister. You don't grab each other and you fight with each other for a toy. That's not what brothers and sisters do. In a similar way, Jesus is saying when he sees us naturally withdrawing or retaliating or avoiding enemies, what Jesus says is even though everybody else does that, for those who follow me, that is not how you treat your enemies. There is a different response that Jesus wants for those who follow him. What Jesus tells us, instead of doing that, what the world does and what naturally comes to you, he calls us to respond with something crazy. Respond to them with love. And Jesus does not leave it up to us to define what love is. Because if it was up to us, we'd just be like, fine. We just kind of keep it deep in our hearts. I guess I love him. Like, that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't let you get away with that. There are, when you look at the way Jesus describes love, notice a couple of features that he gives to describe the type of love we are supposed to show enemies. Number one. The love you show enemies, it must be active. It's an active love. You, there's a, Jesus knows there's an attitude that you can have 
where you think you're not enemies to somebody, where you think you're, you're cool, we're cool with each other, but you are totally distant from them. You are emotionally and physically not even near them. And Jesus, according to what he describes, that is not love. That is not the type of love that he is describing. Because notice when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he ties that love to the way we act towards them. Again, in verse 27 and 29, when he says, do good to those who hate you. That's not an emotional thing. It is an act, is an imperative, it is action-oriented. Those who hate you, do good. Those who curse you, bless them. Those who abuse you, pray for them. Love, in other words, according to Jesus, it is not this emotive, passive attitude. It is always an active love demonstrated through actions. That's what love is to our enemies, and that's what it's supposed to look like. A second feature of love is your love must not only be active, but it also must be generous. It must be generous, meaning it must not be less of you. It requires more of you when you love someone who's an enemy. When someone hurts you or insults you, the natural response is for us to hurt them back, right? Or to retaliate against them. But if you're a, a good Christian, what you'll do is I hold my peace. I'm not going to say anything back. I'm just going to be cool with them. But you know what ends up happening for a lot of us who do that? Even though we don't retaliate and we commend ourselves for being good people, what often happens is we don't just not retaliate, we withdraw. We kind of stay back from them. In other words, we give less of ourselves to them than we did before. I mean, think of that person at school or work or church who you're really annoyed with, who irritates you. What if they called you or texted you asking you for a favor to give them a ride somewhere far? Would you do it? Or what if someone said, hey, I, can, I, can we meet? I want to talk to you about this job interview that I have, and I think you'd really help me. And again, this is a person you're really irritated with. Would you give them your time? Or what if someone said, hey, can I borrow, can I borrow something, your, your, uh, your, your game system, or can I borrow your laptop or your iPad? I need to borrow for just a week because it's really important to me. Would you be willing to do that for them? Probably not, right? Because why? The person who irritates us, we don't give more of ourselves, we give less. We naturally give less. We don't want to give them more of ourselves. But notice what Jesus says in verses 29 to 30. When Jesus describes love, he says, to these to people, your enemies, to the one who strikes you in the cheek, if he strikes you, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Jesus is not promoting abuse here. He's not saying just let someone beat you up and just do nothing. He's being hyperbolic. This is a sermon. What Jesus is telling us is when someone takes something from you, offer them more. Do more for them. Your enemies that you are tempted to give less to, give them even more. Because love towards your enemies, according to Jesus, it must be generous. And the third feature of love, what should our love look like towards enemies? Not just active not just generous, but must be selfless. Meaning that this love, it's not about us. It's not about our rights, but we're simply looking at them and doing what's right for them. What's right for them? It's not about what they deserve and what they've done to us and how irritating they are to us, but what does that person need? That's love. Love is in its truest form in the Bible. It is other-oriented, not self-oriented. And that's why in verse 31, Jesus grounds this whole passage in the golden rule, the Christian famous golden rule. Verse 31 says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. 
Do it for their good, regardless of how you are benefiting from this or not. In other words, do something from them even when you get nothing out of it. This is the command. And can you now see how radical of a command this is? Now, before we talk about a little more about how radical this is, let me ask you a quick question. Who are your enemies right now? Who would you consider your enemy? Who bothers you? Who insults you? Who wrongs you? Who's that person that you could think of? And can you really love them this way? The way that Jesus describes? You know, some of you realize you encounter enemies all the time. Like I mentioned earlier, you had bestia moments before. You're that guy in the car who, who people yell at, right? That happens. Yeah, and it's, maybe it's your fault, maybe it's not, but you run into that rude stranger or you have unfriendly customer service. Let me just admit, that's the unfriendly customer service. That's my weakness. When I pay for service, I expect like radical hospitality from a worker. And so if they're ever rude to me or they ever give me sass for anything, especially if I'm not doing anything wrong, oh my gosh, I get so angry. When they're rude to me, um, for example, at a movie theater, I still remember moments at movie theaters where they don't let me bring food that I paid for at the plaza, even though it's against the rules. I will naturally want to just go back going, what are you talking about? This is food. And you just want to push back, especially if they're rude to me. You naturally want to be rude to those who are rude to you. If I'm at a restaurant and they're really rude to me, you know what I'll do? I may not be rude back. They ain't getting tip from me, though. Or the tips can be really small, no 15%, not even 10%, I'll do 8.5% just to let them know like, hey, this wasn't good customer service, right? That's just kind of the way you do things. Or if for some, sometimes if you're having a, a really bad day and, or they're, having, they're really treating you poorly, I'm just thinking, what is their problem? Never once did I ever think, are they having a bad day? Maybe they're having a bad day. Imagine if we responded that way in those moments where instead of, wow, this person's being a jerk, how dare he? What if our brain could get out of ourselves going, hmm, I wonder if he's having a bad day. Maybe that guy in the Bestia truck must have been rough for him, for people be parking in, that, in his parking area all the time, and for people not even giving him space. I, I could see how that could be rough for him. You see how natural that is to the human brain to think of somebody in that way? Or imagine if somebody, they offer you poor service, it's really poor, and you go, hey, 20% tip for you, brother. I'm going to give you 20% tip for you, sister. Who does that? Who does that? Or somebody is really rude to you. Somebody just is like that the movie theater person just isn't, isn't nice to you. And instead of being rude back, you actually respond with kindness. It's okay. I understand. So unnatural. Goes against everything we feel. And yet Jesus is saying this is what he expects from those who follow him. Crazy. Or some of you, you may not know what I'm talking about, right? You go, I don't, rude people don't bother me. But you have that person at your workplace. There's an annoying coworker you have right now where they're just annoying. You just don't like them. I know somebody like that too. I have not a coworker, but I know people in my life where, man, just a person, like it's the worst because I'm annoyed at them, but they don't know I'm annoyed at them. They think we're like, you know, the they think we're best buds. Not best buds, but they think we're cool. And it's the worst because they all like, DM me going, hey, like, you know, and comment on all the stuff that I post on social media, or they will message me going, hey, we should like meet up because I just catch up on things. I'm just like, I'm not even your friend. 
Like, why are you messaging me? But, but I don't want to tell them that. So you, what do I do? Because I don't really like them. I'll just like respond to them, maybe like with a one word response, or I'll tell them, oh, you want to meet up? I'm a little busy these days. Or, hey, you know, uh, man, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if I could really have time to help you with that. Why? Because that person is somebody that you just don't naturally like. That person is someone who they don't even know they're insulting you when they say certain things. It's just really irritating. And so what do you naturally do? You distance yourself. You give less of yourself. You don't really talk to them as much. But Jesus is saying, do something radically different. He wants you to give more of yourself to them, to make time for them, to show kindness for them. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that nuts and unnatural? Well, let's do the most complicated one. What if some of you, you have that enemy where you're like, oh, this person, yeah, I cut them out of my life because you don't know what they did to me. That friend betrayed you and you haven't spoken to that friend in a long time. That family member who kind of abandoned you either physically or emotionally, and yet you just know that there's mad issues between the two of you. Or that church person that you just kind of had a falling out with, and yet you, know, you see them on Sundays, or at least back when we're meeting, but you kind of stand in different social circles. Naturally, you just want to keep your distance from them. You just want to tell people, we're cool. Yeah, we're cool. You know, nothing's wrong. Naturally, you just, but you just don't want ever to do anything with them again. However, what does it look like to actually love them? If what Jesus is saying is true that we're called to love, what does that look like? Especially an active love, a generous love, a selfless love. Can you imagine doing that? Oh, hard. This is so hard. This is so difficult. It is the most unnatural way to love. It's hard enough to love our family and friends this way. And we actually like them. <laughs> to love your enemies in this way, it feels impossible. So why does Jesus instruct us to love this way? Why does he want us to practice this? And that leads to the second point, the powerful witness of love. The reason why Jesus calls his disciples to love this way is because this is a type of love the world does not understand. This is so unnatural that the world cannot understand, and yet something about it feels so beautiful and so right. That's why Jesus, he contrasts the way he is calling his disciples to love versus the way the world tends to practice love in verses 32 to 34. Look what he says again. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. You know, what Jesus is addressing here specifically is he's talking about the way the world works. The world works in a way where if you do good for me, I will do good for you. There is a sense of we, a reciprocal spirit that takes place. And this was so true back in Jesus' time. In the first century, you never invited somebody to your home just to invite them to your home. You did it so that you could expect favor from them. You never lend money to somebody for the sake of lending money. It was always because in return, they will praise you of how generous you are to other people. There is a spirit of reciprocal love that was just expected. And that is the way they loved back then. And it is still the way we love today. Imagine if we went out to lunch. And imagine if I bought you lunch. And I said, hey, and he said, no, 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 please, I got to have like, no, no, it's okay. I got you. Imagine we go out again and I buy you lunch and you go, no, 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 it's okay. I got you. Now imagine the third time 
A third time we got to lunch and I go, oh, oh my gosh, I forgot my credit card. More likely you'd be like, I got it. I got you. And you'll pay for my lunch. Why? Because look at all the times I bought you lunch. Flip the scenario. Let's pretend every, we went out to lunch. Oh, I forgot my wallet. First time we met. Can you buy me lunch today? No problem. You buy me lunch. Second time. Oh, hey, you got lunch today? Yeah, yeah, I got you. No problem. Third time, I'm like, hey, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I forgot my wallet again. You know what? There won't be a fourth lunch. There probably won't be a fourth lunch between us. Why? I'm jacking you, right? It feels like I'm jacking you. What's going on here? Why is that happening? Ed Welsh, he wrote this article called Love More Than You Need. And I said this illustration before, but it's so true. Ed Welsh, he's a counselor. He's saying, you know, all relationships, the way it works is there's a balance scale that we have with people. And the balance scale on the scale is love and loved. It's all about how much you love and how much you receive love. And we all balance each person based upon that balance scale. So if you buy me lunch, but once I buy you lunch, we're even. And it's all good. But if you keep buying me lunch, oh man, uh, it's becoming abusive. It's becoming one-sided, taking advantage of you. And we don't like that. We like relationships that all feel symmetrical. If it's all 50-50, you show me love, I show you love, because this feels balanced, this feels fair, this feels mutually beneficial. And this is how we learn what how love works. This is what love looks like. Here's the problem. Most relationships never feel 50-50. That's the problem. They often feel 52-48, or they feel 60-40, or even 75-25. Why do I always initiate with this person? I always message them first to me, and they don't message me back. What are you saying? It's getting uneven. Why am I always buying them meals? Why am I always treating them out? It's getting uneven. Why don't they ever do this for me? Why don't they ever host me? In other words, what you're saying is the balance scale is uneven and it's becoming again from 50-50 to 60-40, 75-25. Once you hit 90-10, it's like enemy territory. Enemy territory is right there. And when it, sometimes it feels like it's a negative. And when it's a negative, you stop spending time with them because it is no longer benefiting you. It's only costing you. And we don't like that. We want things to be fair. Why show love to somebody who hurts me? But even though that's the natural way we navigate relationships, realize this is how we naturally navigate relationships. Jesus says for his followers, it's meant to be different. You know why? Look again at verses 32 to 34. Three times Jesus says, what benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? He says it three times. Now, what's interesting is we don't catch it in English. But you know that word benefit and credit in verses 32 to 34? Actually, those three words translate the same Greek word, charis. And if you guys know what the Greek word for charis is, it's grace. Grace is something that refers to a gift or a present or any action granted freely out of one's goodness. So what Jesus is telling us is when you love those who love you, where's the grace in that? When you do good to those who do good to you, where's the grace in that? When you lend to those you receive, where is the grace in that? In other words, what Jesus is saying is the world measures and practices love based on merit, based on credit, based on what's being done for you. But Jesus' followers, it's a little bit different. It's not based on merit. It's based on grace. Despite what they've done to you, despite the balance scales that are there, 
but Jesus is saying we are marked as people of grace. And therefore, it's not, not this mutual beneficial thing that we do with everybody else, just like everybody else does, but Jesus' people are different. The world is not used to seeing of love like this, a love that is not just about balance, but a love that even when it's an ultimate imbalance, we still practice it. But when God's people practice a love like this, not just with one another, but with enemies even, the world changes. Back in 2006, I know you guys heard that story in Pennsylvania where a gunman, his name was Charles Roberts, and he went to a local Amish school. It was like right there for him. And he went and he shot the school up, shot 10 kids, killed five of them, and then he killed himself. Now, we, that story made news back in 2006, but one story you didn't hear is you know, the, the gunman, Charles, he killed himself, but we didn't hear about his, his family. You don't really hear about the victim's family or the, shoot, the enemy's family or the shooter's family. And so what happened was Charles' parents, the shooter, when they heard the news, they were devastated that their son did this. And the father was quoted saying, I will never face my Amish neighbors again. How can I ever talk to an Amish person again based upon what my son has done? And so what happened was a few weeks later, or a few days later, rather, Charles, they, you know, they had a funeral for their son and nobody showed up because he's a shooter. Like he's, he's, the, he's a bad person. And so it was, it was just the family who showed up and had a private funeral. But all of a sudden, when they went to the gravesite to bury Charles, a group of people showed up. You know who that was? The Amish community. The Amish community came. The people who the son shot up. And the Amish community, they went to the family and they said, hey, just know, as painful as it is, we forgive you. In fact, we sympathize that you lost somebody too. You lost your son. And we actually want to get to know you and build relationships. And, to that, and that's kind of what happened, where to this day, they still are in relationship with the shooter's family. And news reporters, they just report us like crazy going, can you believe the story? Can you believe that the people who are meant to be probably, understandably so, the enemies of the Amish community, how they went to them, to the family, and said, we want to know you? We've never seen anything like this. The world paid attention because this is a love that you just don't see regularly. I know I experienced this personally as well. Less dramatic, but this is probably a more realistic scenario that we experience love like this. I remember um, personally witnessing a friend who loved what I perceived as a very natural enemy. Back in college, I was friends with, the, uh, with this girl and she was dating a guy and she had their boyfriend, girlfriends, both attended the same church and they always talked about getting married. They always thought, we're going to get married one day. We're going to get married one day. They both want to do like mission work and church ministry together. And after like four to five years of dating, all of a sudden they broke up. He broke up with her. And obviously, you know, any breakups is difficult, especially it's been four years, especially during his formative years. And so, and even more difficult was they went to the same church. So it's like, oh, that must be rough for her. But what's even crazier was a few months later, like six months later, all of a sudden, I found out he's dating again, and he was dating her roommate. He started dating her roommate now. And, it's like, and she went to the same church too. And I was like, oh my goodness, that must be so hard for her, for her ex-boyfriend, her old roommate, they're now dating together, and they all attend the same church. They're all serving together. They're all in leadership together. And I remember talking to my friend thinking, oh, wow, that must be so hard for you. Um, she, um, she felt hurt, of course. And I just thought, those are, those are your enemies now. And so you better get out. <laughs> like, get out of that church right now. Toxic environment. Bounce. But what's crazy is, you know, months passed by and she's still there. She was still there. She didn't leave. She's still part of the church. 
And then later on, I heard that she actually talked to her roommate, talked to her, you know, just patching things up, squaring it up. She actually served with her ex-boyfriend in the same ministry. And she would tell me, oh, yeah, she's practically trying to love them. In fact, now they're all older. The years that passed, they're all older. They all now have kids. They all still attend the same church. And my friend who got jacked, she's part of, uh, she's just serving their kids in the children's ministry. I remember at the time when I saw the trajectory of that, I was like, I've never seen that before. Couples always break up and they leave. One of them leaves. <laughs> at least one of them leaves. You just can't do that with your enemy there. I was so confused by her actions, like why she would stay. I was so confused why she would keep serving and wanted to be in relationship with them. I was so confused that I started visiting her church because I wanted to know, hey, how did you learn love like this? Because I wasn't a Christian at the time. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I didn't understand how you learn love like this. See, a love like this, when you love your enemies, it's so weird. It's so confusing. And yet we can't help but be drawn to it. We can't help but be humbled when we see something like this. Have you ever attempted to love anybody like this? Have you ever tried to show love towards an enemy, somebody who insults you, somebody where it costs you to actually spend time with them? There is nothing more unnatural than to love them in this way. And that's why we need more than just an example. We need strength. We need power. And that leads to the last point, the personal strength to love. After explaining how love like this, it shines in a broken world. It shines. Jesus tells us, he repeats the command, and then he explains, but this is, this is how you do it. This is how you got to love. Verses 35 to 36, he says, love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Notice Jesus, he doesn't tell us when we love our enemies, you're going to be faithful people or you're gonna be good disciples, or you're, you're moral people when you do this. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, when you do this, when you love your enemies, you will be what? Sons of the most high. Not that we become sons, but you reflect somebody else as sons. When I see my son reading a book, I always say, that's my boy. That's my boy reading his book. He doesn't become my son at that moment. <laughs> okay, he's already my son, but I say, that's my boy because he's reflecting me, because I like reading books. He's, a ref he's doing what daddy does. In a similar way, this is what Jesus is saying. When we don't just love, but we are loving our enemies, what Jesus is saying, that's my boy. That's when you're becoming like your father. Because Christianity says, we do not worship a God who simply loves those that are easy to love. He just loves his friends, loves his family, or just loves the godly. But according to what Christianity says, we have a God who loves even his enemies. In verse 36, again, it says he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you realize who Jesus is talking about here? Do you realize who the evil and ungrateful are? It's you. It's me. We are the evil. We are the ungrateful. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 said, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Christianity says we actually are natural enemies of God. We live our lives ungrateful to him. We practice evil. And God has every right to naturally avoid us, to withdraw from us, to retaliate against us. The balance scales are totally uneven, uneven between us and God. But the gospel tells us that God does not operate like the world. He does not operate according to our merit and how much we've done for him in order for him to love us. 
But the gospel tells us he offers us charis or grace. That is what he offers us. The gospel says God responds to his enemies with love. And not in a general sentimental way, but think about the gospel. God shows us a love in the gospel that's not just this internal love, but it's active. He came to us incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. He took action to love his enemies. God doesn't just show a love that's very fickle, but it's a generous love. He offered in our moment of weakness, the most costly gift that he could give to us, which was his son. And God showed us this love, not in a way because it's mutually beneficial, but simply so that we can receive eternal life with him. Only when you experience this love for yourself, only when this love for you is actually that deep and you grasp that type of love for you, can you have the ability and power to practice love like this to others and show that you are the son of the most high. Again, this doesn't happen naturally. We need to regularly remember and experience the love of God towards his enemies, in other words, towards us, for us to have the power to love as God causes us to love. This is why the Amish community, they were able to respond and love this way. As one author says, at the heart of this Amish community was their faith of a man dying for his enemies. And through communal practices, this self-sacrificing figure was seen, sung, believed, rehearsed, and celebrated constantly. And when that's constantly there in the culture of what you are doing in your life of a God who doesn't, who dies for his enemies, you can't help but let that be something that drives deeper into your own heart as well. And so if you hear this passage that we're going through right now, and you have broken relationships or enemies in your life, but you plan to go, well, that's a nice sentiment. Probably not going to do anything about it. Check yourself. Check yourself. A mark of a son of the most high is not somebody who simply believes God is real. Even the demons believe that. That doesn't show anything if we simply believe. A mark of a son of the most high isn't when you serve in church, go on mission trips, become a leader. You can fake that. You can just fake that. No one knows what's going on in your heart. A mark of a son of the most high, it's not when you love your family and friends. It's not when you have a great family and a healthy friendship life, as good as those are, because that comes naturally to people. A mark of the Son of the Most High is how do you relate to your enemies? How do you relate to those who bother you? Because you can't fake that. Something supernatural has to come for you to really love and take steps of love towards, towards those who just irritate you, bother you, and even hurt you. How can you give thanks to God for his mercy when you refuse to show mercy? How can we profess God forgave me for, because of his grace, but we would fail to offer grace? It's either you're not experiencing the type of love that God says that he offers to us, or you've never experienced it before, which makes it so hard for us to do the same for others. So to conclude, let me end with this question again. Who are your enemies right now in your life? What kind of enemies are they? And how are you being called to respond? Coworker that you hate right now? Church member that you dread seeing in two weeks? Friend that you have a falling out with and it's just kind of weird? What's one step of love, one step of faith that you can take towards them that's active, action-oriented, that's generous, offers more, not less, and that's selfless where it's not about you, it's about them? Might be greeting them, might be commenting on social media, might be offering to do a favor, might even just be thinking about them for the first time in a long time and how can you forgive them? It's not easy, but when we do this, 
what Jesus tells us is we together reflect what it means to be called sons of the most high. And I hope our love can help us reflect that type of image and sonship to the rest of the world. Let's all pray together.